This is Real Talk, the podcast with Devin Weeders, where we talk all things inclusion and have a little bit of fun too. Remember to leave a five-star review and enjoy the show. Today, we have kind of a heavy episode in store, so just a forewarning. We have Vance Goforth. He went through a horrible time with his artistic son and he is going to share his story with us today and just a disclaimer i laugh a lot in this story not because it's funny but because when i'm nervous or anxious or mad i laugh i laugh for every emotion we are trying to work on it um yeah so enjoy the show learn a lot from it and Let's do our part to make sure that stories like this never happen again. This is Real Talk, the podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. My name is Devin Readers. Today, we have Vance Goforth, and he is going to tell us a little bit of a cautionary, heartbreaking tale today on what happens when you do not have the proper services for people with special needs and the consequences of that. So, Vance, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you, Devin? I am doing well. Thank you for being here. First of all, tell us about yourself and then we'll go from there. Uh, well, <clears throat> I'm a father of five. Uh, our oldest is uh, Joshua, uh, and I have twin daughters that are 15. Uh, I have a 13-year-old son and a 9-year-old daughter. Uh, Joshua uh, was <clears throat> my wife's nephew, and uh, we've had custody of him since he was uh, three months old. And uh, she went through the adoption process, and it was actually finalized three days before we got married. Oh, that's so sweet. Ah, uh, that that must have been really special. It was. <laughs> Tell us about your story. Like, start telling us your story, and then I'll sit down and ask questions during parts of it. Okay. Uh, well, like I said, the story starts. Uh, me and my wife, Christy, was in college. Uh, we were like everybody else. We was planning on getting married. And, uh, you know, we had plans. We, we had everything planned out or so we thought. And uh, Christy's nephew was born. And 29 days later, I come out of uh, class one night and there was a note on my car on the windshield. And I picked it up and there was just a feeling of dread uh, the second I picked that note up. And it was from Christy. And all it said on it was, come to my mom's house. It's Josh. I didn't know what had happened at the time. I didn't know what was going on. So I just, I left Chattanooga and drove back to Cleveland. And by the time I got there, there was just all the family there. Everyone was crying. And Christy just took me outside and told me that Josh had been the victim of abuse. Um, He was barely surviving uh, at that time, he had coded uh, multiple times. I can't even remember how many times they had to revive him. Um, and uh, his condition was not good at all. 
And for the next couple of weeks, uh, they didn't think he was going to make it. Uh, but the nurses and the doctors kept working. Uh, they was able to get the swelling uh, on his brain under control uh, and worked with him. And after about a month, uh, he was doing better and was released from the hospital into foster care. And uh, Christy came to me and said, hey, uh, I think I'm on try for custody. And I said, well, I said, whatever you decide, I'm in this with you. So she got custody of three months and uh, that's where the, the story started. He, he had 30 to 50 seizures per day. Um, How was it that you survived that volume of seizures? Because you must not have been able to go anywhere with that many seizures. It was tough. Um, the seizures was very painful for him. I remember uh, when I would go over to Christy's apartment and just seeing those seizures, it was so shocking to me when she got custody because it was just, I wasn't prepared for it. I was not prepared to see such a small child in that much pain. And it, it was shocking. It was heartbreaking. And uh, the doctors were still working to try to get them under control. Uh, but that stayed that way, and, and doctors have warned us. They said he may go into a seizure, and it might take his life. He may never recover from it. So we had that, you know, constantly hanging over our head, a worry for Christy, and, uh, well, it was a worry for all of us. And uh, it was tough. Uh, but at nine months old, they they got him, you know, they, they finally stopped, Uh for, for a long time. Uh, he has a few now here and there, but uh, not to the extent he did when he was an uh, infant. And um, tell us if there's nothing you want to tell us in between. If there is, you wa- you're welcome to. About the pure hell you all went through when Josh became a teenager. Start telling us that, and like we did before, I'll stop and ask questions. Yeah. Well, you know, and the, the, the shaken baby at uh, 29 days old led up to that was a warning for us because the doctor said he has damage to his right frontal lobe. And they said that can lead to severe aggression, uh, anger issues, uh, uncontrollable emotions later on in life. Of course, you know, was, his parents, we was like, no, we're going to work through this. We're, we're going to make sure this never happens. But. You know, unfortunately, it did develop uh, in his teenage years. Um, We didn't see a lot of behaviors. There was a few things uh, growing up, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't anything that uh, we couldn't deal with. When he hit puberty, um, they started seeing issues at school first. And they called an IEP meeting, and they just told us, I said, look, we're seeing this. We're, he's having these issues. He's doing this. And they started describing all these things to us. And me and Christy just looked at one another and said, we're not seeing this at home. And they assured us. They said, you know, he is having severe behaviors. He's having severe episodes at school. And that probably went on for six months, I think it was, around six or seven months. And then one day. It happened. And when it happened at home, it was like, oh, goodness, this is what the teachers have been telling us. And 
this is what the doctors has been warning us about. Is is that like when you first started the journey to find him some sort of help? At first, when that that probably started, he was around 11, 12 years old uh, when we started having the severe behaviors at school. Um, it was in that age range. It may have been, I can't remember if it was 11 or 10, but it was between 10 and 12 year old when they first started gradually starting at school and then full blown at home uh, within a few months. And uh, we didn't start seeking help at that time. We did mention the pedi- to the pediatrician, uh, and he stayed on top of it for a while uh, because he said we can adjust some of his seizure medications to help with the behaviors. And uh, the first uh, probably year or two, that worked fine. And uh, then they were gradually, uh, over time, they were building and the intensity was starting to ramp up, and uh, the the severity and the uh, frequency of them um, was kindly on a uh, it was just kindly a slow ramp up for a while, and then I'll never forget as as he was uh, after a while we had to basically homeschool him uh, because the, the behaviors had got to a point at school where they said that the other students wasn't safe. They couldn't uh, keep him safe. So we just agreed to uh, uh, put him in uh, on homebound and have his therapists and teachers come home to our home. And we were in that time frame when we started seeing this exponential ramp up, uh, I'm guessing he was a that ramp up was between probably right before he's 14 up to 15 years old, uh, and it started getting more and more and more extreme, and. Uh, it just hit an exponential curve and, and went through the roof, really. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at. Um, so, so at what point did you realize um, that he needed help and start, like, active researching for someone to help him? Okay. Well, in that range between, I would say – Right before he was 14 to 15, we started talking to the pediatrician uh, more. He said, you know, he's having more behaviors. They're getting worse. Uh, They managed it with medications at first. Uh, And we learned the hard way about medications. Yes. uh, Because, (laughs) yes, uh, and and we didn't know uh, because uh, we were just, and we have a really great great pediatrician and he has worked with us uh, so close over the years and took such a special interest uh, with Josh but unfortunately uh, you know with medications you don't know until they're tried what the reactions are going to be and especially with uh, medicines that they use for behaviors and uh, if it's not the right dosage or the right combination of medicines, it can actually have the opposite effect. 
and I'll never forget, we tried a, one medication to help Josh, and it had the opposite effect. And I believe I mentioned this uh, in another podcast before, but I spent six hours on the couch holding him, uh, trying to keep him from self-injuring. Uh, it was very intense. How did that feel? And I can't even imagine having to like hold somebody down for six hours. Yeah, it, well, it was actually, I was just kind of holding him, hugging him on the couch because Josh, an embrace to him is very calming. Uh, so a lot of times just, you know, I'll hug Josh, uh, we'll calm him down, uh, during a lot of the episodes, it's very common to him. He loves to be hugged. He gives hugs. So I basically would just was hugging him on the couch. Uh, but it was scary. I had never, this was the first time we'd seen the intensity to this level. And I ended up, you know, almost my shoulders was pulled. I pulled muscles in my back, um, trying to hold him because he, he the, whatever that medicine was doing, and it was totally the opposite effect of what it should have had. And that was that was when we seen okay, we may need more more help uh, in the future. We knew then um, because that one that was a scary situation. Uh, but we thought, you know, the pediatrician will continue to, to be able to handle it. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, on into, I believe, this next occurrence where it was, I, I guess, if you're looking for one occurrence that uh, we said, okay, we've got to have help now. Uh, that happened, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was in... March, it was either February or March of uh, 2016 was when that incident took place. And if you don't mind me asking, what exactly happened? Well, me and my wife, were, I was off work that day and uh, the rest of the kids was at school. And we took Josh, and we was looking for a new living room suit. So we went to a local uh, furniture store, and it was probably about 11, 11.30. We'd been in there looking, and Josh come up and kind of tugged on me, and, and he's let me know he's hungry. He's wanting to go eat. So I, I asked him. Uh, you know, are you hungry? And he kind of shook his head and kind of let me know. So I told Chris, he said, come on, we'll, we'll come back sometime. So I asked him, I said, do you want McDonald's? And he kind of let me know. Yeah, that's what I want. So we went and got in line. And while we were in line, he, he kind of started tugging on me again. And I kept reassuring him. I said, Josh, we're here. We're in line. And he tugged on me again. And I said, that we're, we're in line. I said, we're getting it ordered. It said, just be a minute. And I believe he tugged me one more time and then went into an outburst. Um, and it was severe. And I just told Christy, I said, go ahead and just pull out a line. I said, we're going to have to get him home. I said, this is, this is bad. And she realized it. So she pulled out and I was trying to, my best. I was trying to, you know, turn the radio on, give him whatever music 
because a lot of times that will help de-escalate. Unfortunately, once he reaches a certain level and uh, and these outbursts, even the things that he would love, like music or pictures of Santa Claus and looking at books, even those things that would normally calm him will actually ramp him up. So I was trying my best to try to get it, the situation to de-escalate. And we made it about a mile down the road. And uh, Josh turned and uh, <clears throat> he kicked the side window out of her van. And he was screaming and he got his feet out of the van. And I told Chris, I said, oh, God, I said, please just stop. So she realized what was happening. I'm trying to get my seatbelt off. And I, I jumped through because I was sitting in the front. And because uh, we'd had locks that we could put over his seatbelt to to keep uh, him from undoing his seatbelt. And he had broke those and kicked the window out. And by the time I got to him, he was up to his waist hanging out of the window and was going 55 mile an hour. So at this point, Christy's crying. I, I'm, I was able to pull him into the van right before she gets got stopped. She was we were actually still moving. And uh, I told her, I said, just focus. And I said, just get us home. And I kind of laid on the seat with him. And we got home. And I was able to get him out of the van after about 15 minutes or so. And I said, come on, let's go find something to eat. And I got him in. We got him something to eat and got his medicine. And when he, after he took his medicine, he laid down and took a nap. And, and me and Christy was just kind of standing there looking at one another, thinking, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? So I called the insurance, uh, my insurance company. There was some help numbers on the back of the card. And I had been told if we ever have a situation, call those numbers and we can get help. And if I may stop you for a minute, this is where the cautionary tale slash sad commentary on the level of services out there comes in okay go ahead yes yes definitely uh because we called that number and they were <sighs> their first words to us was we've never run into a situation like this before we don't know quite what to do and, and did you ask them like do you guys have any training on what to do <laughs> like i know well, you've yeah. not run into it but like have you at least been trained? Like, did you ask them about that? We, at the time we didn't, we was still shook up from, you know, just the whole situation of what had just happened. So we were kind of just in a fog. So we thought, okay, if we call this help number, surely they'll know who to contact. They'll know what to do. And it was kind of shocking uh, because they said they'd never run into this. They didn't know what to do. And he told my wife, he said, well, I'm going to report this to Children's Services. And what and, went through your mind when you heard that? Like, you must have been terrified. Well, we we were, actually, because we thought Children's Services, you know, because we thought, well, why would you, you know, we're just needing help. This is a crisis situation. We didn't think of Children's Services to be called. And he said, no, I'm required to do that because your son's in danger. 
And it started shaping up in a way that scared us because we're like, oh, no, you know, this is not we're not abusing him. He's not in danger. We're just needing help. And and the guy said, no, we've got to report it. We're required to report this. So Christy's crying. I'm trying to get her to, you know, calm down. I said, well, we maybe they will know what to do. So while we're still on the line, he calls Children's Services. And Children's Services, here's everything that's going on. They explains everything. And then basically Children's Services said, well, why are we called? And he said, well, I felt they were in danger. And I, me and Christy spoke up and said, well, he said he was required to call. She said, no, he's not required to call. And he said, well, he said, I felt under the circumstances since, you know, this was so dangerous. This was the best thing to do. And Children's Services basically said, well, this is not an abuse case. I said, no, it's not. I said, we're just needing help. So basically, after a long conversation with, you know, all everybody on the line, they said, Children's Services said, if you don't see us within 48 hours, we won't be there. And that was kind of the end of the call. And everybody hung up. I and mean, Christy was standing there looking at one another thinking, what now? And 48 hours passed nothing uh we we never heard back we didn't nobody came out uh you know they just kind of ended there so at that point we we start searching for more uh options the next thing we tried was we we got an appointment at a a, a hospital uh, uh, kind of a uh, special uh, specialized hospital for uh children in Chattanooga called Siskin Institute and it was to help deal with you know they deal with special needs children and we went into this appointment and Josh goes into an episode right in the middle of the the office while the PA sitting there interviewing us wanting to know what's going on and he's laughing hysterically and goes into this episode and she's scared to death uh, she gets a desk and puts between her and Josh. And I'm trying to explain to her, I said, you know, don't be scared. I said, these, he actually thinks this is a game right now. I said, yeah, he's a little rough, but, but it was, it was escalating. And she seen real quick. She said, you know, this is beyond uh, what we're going to be able to do here. And she's been just like, oh my God, where do we go now? That must have been, I I feel like a broken record on this podcast, but that must have been terrifying. It, it was. Uh, that was the moment when me and Christy just looked at each other. We just kind of numb at that point was like, oh my goodness, what now? Because she said, you've got to get him to somebody that specializes in, uh, said it's going to take a mental health specialist and they set us up with a with a local uh actually it was a children's uh, psychiatrist that uh specialized in this area and we we got in and uh, started seeing him we took josh in he 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 met josh he evaluated him he talked to us we told him everything that was going on we explained everything and I can't remember if it was the second or the third visit that we talked to the him. He told us, he looked at us point blank and said, he has to have inpatient treatment ASAP. He said, he's got to have now. He said, you need to find somewhere and get him in now. I said, well, what, 
why? He said, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And he told us from that point, he said, with everything you're seeing, he started explaining what was going on with Josh. And he, he really even told us, he said, right here's some of the diagnosis that he has. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now what you're seeing. And he explained it. He said, what you'll see next is this. And he said, it will progress to this. And he said, the self-injury is going to get to a point where he started explaining everything. And we didn't know at the time, but he pretty much told us our future. And he said, I know what this is. And he said, he's got to be treated for it now or it's going to get worse. Did you ever think that, though, I know that they told you, but did you ever think that it would actually get that bad? Or could you imagine it at that point? I thought at that point, I thought, okay, well, this is a professional. Uh, This doctor has said he needs it ASAP. We kind of thought. You know, this would be like any other medical uh, issue that you would have. If somebody recognizes a medical issue and they say you need this certain treatment, then they get you into a specialist right away. Well, we thought, okay, well, they recognize this diagnosis and they recognize it's going to take inpatient treatment. Okay, they'll make the referral and we'll get in somewhere. We found out real fast that was not the case. Yes, because when it comes to people with disabilities, I have been lucky that I've had great doctors, that they've all been here, but the lack of services out there, like I I would want to live on my own someday, but I would need support. But we cannot find any place that only serves physical needs you have to have some kind of mental need and we're like i don't need that yes it it is it is hard devin uh we experienced that real quick and it's real hard with josh because not only did he have shaken baby syndrome and and uh, seizure disorder he also has cerebral palsy he also has bipolar disorder uh he's you know has multiple intellectual and developmental delays uh, he has disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. They, you know, he has a list of all these different diagnoses. So we're needing help right away, and we research, not knowing what where to go, what to do. And I find a local place that can uh, basically they they take them in, they they look at their medications, they manage the medications, they manage the behaviors. So we call and said. You know, right here's what my son's going through. We've got this uh, doctor that said he needs inpatient treatment. Can you help us? And they said, wow, he is a prime candidate for our program. So we thought, okay, here we go. We're going to get him into this. So we start working. We fill out applications. We, We get all the paperwork in, and we're waiting. We're waiting weeks. We never hear anything. I call back. We email. Still don't hear anything. This went on for a couple, two or three months. Finally, I call back again, and then somebody finally gets back in touch with me after a couple more weeks and said, well, what happened? Somebody dropped the ball. They lost your paperwork. Which it, which now, made me want – when I was listening to this on Loma, that made me want to throw my phone at the wall because if that was their child – 
I have a feeling they would not have lost the paperwork. Exactly. It it, it was kind of a, a a punch in the gut, and it was it was shocking. It was aggravating. It made us mad. We were desperate because this whole time, Josh is getting worse, and the behaviors are always getting a little more intense each time. And they said, okay, we've actually, they said, well, we actually let somebody go over this, which I mean, they wouldn't, what we had requested or anything. They said, we'd already took care of the problem. We've got it all sorted out now and we're going to fast track him. They told us, said, we're going to fast track him because we know the need. We know how severe he is. And we thought, okay, good. So we start going through the process again. They start calling us. They set up a date and said, okay, I have your bags ready to go. We were going to come up, you'll tour everything, have all of this stuff packed. And you'll, when you'll tour it and when you're fine with everything, we can leave him here and we'll get him started in the program. They set a date. And me and Christy was kind of relieved. We thought, oh, thank you, Lord. We finally got an answer prayer here. And I'll never forget the day before we were supposed to go up there. I can't remember if it was a nurse or one of the administrators who it was called, but somebody called and they wanted a list of his medications. And Christy started naming off all the different medications that he, and he was on quite a few at that point because they was trying to get these behaviors controlled the best they could. And you could just tell they were like, uh, Christy told them some of the medications. They were like, what, what did you say? Do what? And Christy told them again. And they said, okay, We'll we'll get this and we'll look over it. So they got off the phone and I can't remember if it was in the next hour or when it was. It was pretty quick. She gets a second phone call and they said, does Josh have a wheelchair? And Christy told him, said, yes, he's got a wheelchair. Said he, he does have cerebral palsy, but, you know, he can walk. He don't require the wheelchair. It's just when we go on tr- trips if it's, you know, at an amusement park or something, he gets tired. So we have the wheelchair for that purpose, but, you know, it's not a problem. He can walk. So we tell him that, and then we get a phone call back from the administrator later saying, um, we're not going to be able to accept Josh. Which I was <laughs> so mad when I heard that because I was like, you know, they were just looking for a reason not to take them. They might as well have just said, okay, we can't take you. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, and it, it was used as an excuse. And for a treatment program to call us back, and I've, I've actually got it in writing. I've got it on their letterhead an official letter of uh, denial of admission. And they put put it in writing what they told us over the phone. They said, our, our facility is not ADA compliant. And because your son has a wheelchair, we cannot accept him. Okay, so first of all, what treatment facility is not ADA compliant? And what year was this? This was in 2016. What? Treatment facility in 2016 is not ADA compliant and has not suffered any repercussions. And yeah, they were that made yeah, me so mad. Well, it, it, yes, and, and we tried multiple times to get in there, and I can't remember if the letter that I've got was from that phone call or if it was actually dated sometime in 2017. Did you take any legal action against these people? 
what what I did was I reported it to the Tennessee Justice Center because I didn't want other families to uh, be turned down for that reason. And from what I've heard uh, from the uh, Vanderbilt Kennedy Center and different ones that I work with uh, through advocacy, that that had happened multiple times uh, to different families. And nobody said anything like they were just allowed to continue like that. They, they, it happened for a long time. And like I said, I went to the Tennessee Justice Center and said, Look, you need to look into this. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, the way uh, statutes of limitations are, unless an, an actual abuse case takes place, I was told that you only have 180 days. Well, we were right in the thick of trying to get Josh help. And, and when so, we didn't get him in a program, yeah, we couldn't. I mean, we didn't have the time to to look into any type of repercussions or, or you know, uh, or anything for that facility because we were too busy just trying to survive at that point. And so you can only be convicted of violating the ADA if your complaint comes forward within 180 days, no matter what. We did or not. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds... was what was told to me. Now, whether that is correct or not, I don't know. Uh, but now that was that was coming from somebody that deals with this quite often. Uh, but I did turn it over to them and they did look into it. And the fact that there was other families being told that I think it's been resolved now. And I pray that as because no family should ever be told that. Yes. Uh, OK, go ahead with the rest of the um, story. So at this point, we're just kind of thinking, oh, what do we do? You know, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing that can be done. We can't get in. So we contact uh, the office of uh, DIDD and uh, Department of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities here in their state. And we set up an appointment with them and they come in and they said, you know, hey, you are right in the thick of a crisis situation. And we said, we know. We said, what are our options? What can be done? And we had Josh. He was signed up. He was on the waiting list for the waiver for DIDD. And they said, well, look, they said, we cannot offer him services until he turns 22. How long? And I was just sitting how there. How long is the wait list? In Tennessee? Uh, back during that time, it was there. I mean, there was a lot. There were several thousand on the wait list. And I don't know the exact number during that time, but I knew there was a lot. Like and how many there was a lot years, of families. months, days oh, did they say you have to wait? I know some, some families had been waiting years, multiple, multiple years. Which is ridiculous, and, but it's like that everywhere. Re- it is. It is like that everywhere. Since I've started advocating that, you know, it is like a broken record. You hear it across the, the entire nation. And we we were kind of in shock because they said, well, we can't do anything until he's 22 anyway. And I'm like, we're a long way from 22 years old. I said, what on earth are we going to do? Why 22? Like, why did they tell you that? I, th- I think the way the waiver program was set up, that was the uh, age that they took over. Uh, 
Well, that that's all I know because she sense. said we can't <laughs> we can't offer any type of services until he's twenty two. Is what what was explained to us? That makes and a whole said, lot of mm-hmm. sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And but she said, now I understand you're in crisis. She said we're going to get you help. I said okay. I said <laughs> you know however we've got to do it. So she said we're going to set up an appointment with Children's Services, and me and Christy just sunk into the seat. Like, here we, we go like, again. Oh, no. Here we go again. <laughs> and she said, no, no, no. She said, you don't understand. This is just the process we've got to go through. And she said, it'll be fine. I said, well, okay. I said, however, I said, we're willing to do whatever. Uh, so she sets up an appointment and they set it up for uh, when I get off. I got off work at five o'clock and their office was like two minutes from where I work. So I got off work. I, I went over to their office and they, we went in and they took Josh in and we were sitting there and the, the guy come out. He said, I've got to take Josh back and interview him alone. And me and Christy just kind of looked at each other and said, well, okay, we'll take him. And he walked Josh back and he come back out in about five minutes. He said, uh, nobody told me Josh was nonverbal. I said, you didn't ask. <laughs> so... <laughs> He found out that Josh is nonverbal. He said, well, okay. He said, well, in that case, he said, just come on back. So they brought us all into a room, and I started explaining everything that was going on. I said, look, we need help. we got to have help now. And this guy looked at me and said, uh, why is Josh no longer welcome in your home? And when you heard that, I, your reaction was, oh, I my God. Stopped. I stopped, and I froze. I froze for a second. I looked at my wife and I could just see this look of fear on her face. And I said, uh, that's not the case. I said, he is welcome in her home. I just said, we need help and we need help desperately. And he said, well, DIDD reported to us that your family was in danger. Josh was in danger and he's no longer welcome in your home. I said, no, that is not the case. He is welcome in our home. I just need help. My wife needs help. We need help. I said, we've got to have help desperately. He said, so that's not the case. He said, he's, you're, you're not saying he's not welcome in your home. And I said, no, he's welcome in our home. We just need help now. He said, okay. He said, I need you to get all this paperwork. And he, he gave me a list of stuff. And he said, I want you to email this over to me in the morning. And we'll go from there. I said, okay. Went home that night. I got all the paperwork ready. I scanned it. And I sent it over to him. And we never heard another word back. So they have your private medical information and just ghosted you, basically. Well, I mean, we, we gave them everything. We gave the reports from... Uh, from the psychiatrist saying, you know, he's needing inpatient treatment. Right here's the diagnosis. It's going to get worse. He needs an ASAP. We went over everything. And, and how many years are we into this now by this point? That was in, let's see, we were approved for ECF. What's ECF? And ECF Choices is the state program that Josh was eventually uh, uh, approved for. Okay. And we he he was approved for that in the summer of 2016. 
So, and I know my, I'm, I'm sorry for the confusion. We actually was trying to get into the, the one program actually before. And that's why we had already applied for it. Uh, that's why the months took so long, but it was all during this time that we got those, uh, rejection letters from that one facility and like i said we still tried to get in there multiple times after and that's when i got the letter i'm pretty sure that letter was dated in 17 but this was when this meeting took place was after uh we had got the diagnosis it was after siskin so i'm thinking this was early summer yes it would have been early summer of 2016 was when this meeting took place uh, because what happened was I sent all that paperwork in and we never heard back from it. Which did you even ask, like, is that legal? Like they have our private medical wow. information and they just ghosted us. Well, I- you know, the, I guess since there was no, it wasn't an abuse case, and the fact that Josh was welcome in her home, I guess, ended the case there. Uh, there was nothing, I guess, for them to go on because I never heard back from them. And after about two weeks, I called DIDD back and said, you know, why did you tell Children's Services that Josh was no le- longer welcome in her home? I asked them, I said, why did you do this? And they said, well, you don't understand. If we didn't report it that way, they were never going to help your family. And I was just kind of in shock. Me and Christy was just both blown away by this because we're thinking, what on earth is going on? I mean, why would you have to report that to get help? I know. And I told her, I said, I, I said, okay, you're saying you have to report it that way. But I said, isn't there an easier way? I said, this is, this is getting, I said, we can't get help. And I said, now they won't contact us back. So she said, okay, well, let me look into it. And they, they did keep working with us. And that's when we were, she said, we're going to make a referral to get you into this. It was a new program uh, in the state. Like I said, it was called ECF Choices. And that summer, I think it was in June or July, it, the, the program had just started up. I think Josh was one of the first ones to get into it. And they come out to her house and they said, we, we realize you've been in crisis uh, uh, situations. Uh, they fast-tracked Josh for this program. You've been approved for it. And you're also going to be in another program called Project Transition. They started telling us what we what we were approved for. Then they went into, said, you know, you're going to get respite care. You're going to get so many hours of in-home services uh, where you've got this service available. We've got all these programs available to you. We're going to be coming in once a week. We're going to be doing this. We're going to set up this uh, type of treatment. We're going to do all these different things. And, I mean, we were just sitting there just with smiles on our face. We thought, yes, we're getting help. And and I'm chuckling because I know – because it's so horrible, and I know what's about to happen. So go ahead. Yes, and we're thinking, okay, this is this is going to take off now. We're we've got it. I mean, they're saying we'll get respite care, we'll get in home, and 
days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and months turned into a year. And basically what we heard during that year was we can't find any providers. Every facility, they kept trying to go back to the one facility that had turned Josh down and said they wasn't A compliant. They've probably tried three more times to get Josh into there. Every time they turned down Josh, it was for a different reason. After that, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, we've got too many people ahead. We we don't have a bed available, this, that, the other. We've heard, we heard every excuse from, from that facility that they could be made. They kept trying to get him into there, and we kept trying different places. Everywhere would turn Josh down. So... And I told them, I said, we've got to have help. I said, where's the in-home services that you promised? Well, we're looking at this provider. And we'd, we'd talk to somebody. They'd come in and look at Josh and meet him. And then we'd never hear back. Finally, they looked at me one time and said, look, said he's just too violent. They said, they're not going to send their employees in here and them get hurt. They're not going to provide services to you. I said, but we're approved for in-home services. I said, there's got to be somebody that is trained to handle these behaviors and handle this level of, of care. Uh, well, we're looking, we're looking. <clears throat> so that was in, that started in the summer of 2016. And what was the feeling when you heard that? Like, Oh, it's just by this time we're going, and I've described it. I, you know, in the, in the Loma podcast, I, I told everybody, I said, you know, you go numb and you're in survival mode. Um, it was an unbelievable feeling. I can't imagine how you guys got through an hour, much less a day. I mean, it, it was, it was, it really was. It was an unbelievable, uh, and I've told people, I said, the only way I can describe it. Uh, during those last that last year and a half before we finally got treatment for Josh, how many years did this go on in total? Uh, well, from you know, if you're looking at when we were really trying to seek help in general, it was over three years. Two years of it was in crisis mode. So you guys have been in crisis for two years at this point, and nobody's helping you. It, it, well, the whole the whole time would have been two years. It started in uh, with him kicking the window out and us seeking help in March of two thousand. It's February or March of two thousand sixteen. He finally had his last episode that was so severe was on February twelfth of two thousand eighteen. So that's. Two years. It's it was two years. Two years in crisis level. We had been seeking help uh, pretty regular for three. Uh, before that, we had probably for five or six years been dealing with the medicines and dealing with the pediatrician, trying to keep everything under control. But if you're looking at actual in crisis behaviors, in crisis situations, there was two full years that we we fought to get him help. I I can't even imagine. That just makes me so mad that you guys it had to was, endure that. <laughs> well, it, Devin, it was hard. My mom was was dying of liver failure. 
Oh, on top of that, you have your mother. I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that I've not really discussed that in any of the other uh, podcasts or even on her page, but my mom was dying. And I was trying my best not to let my mom and dad see what was going on because I didn't want to worry them. I wanted my dad to have the best time, you know, that he could have with my mom with what time she had left. So we were basically in isolation. uh, And it it was getting harder. ECF couldn't find anywhere. And like I said, we got that program in, in the summer of 2016. And it was getting worse. By May of 2017, I had been sent to school uh, for a conference, and I was away from home, and he had a really bad episode, and Christy called me, and she said, I'm going to have to call that crisis number again. And I told her, I said, you go ahead and call it, because I said, I'm, I'm, I'm up here. I said, I'm an hour and a half away. Call it and let me know what's going on. So she calls. And we actually get a guy that's, I mean, super knowledgeable, uh, understood the, the the situation, and knew what to do. He just couldn't find anywhere to take Josh. He said, I have tried everywhere. And he said, nobody's going to take him. He said, everybody's saying they don't have a bed open. We can't find an acute treatment facility. And he was trying, 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 trying. And he said, I'm going to call Children's Services. Christy was like, oh, no, no, not again. You must have been like, oh, my God, really? (laughs) Yeah, it was. And that time was horrible because this time Children's Services come in and Josh is in the middle of a full-blown behavioral episode. And this is tough to talk about. And I know it's hard to hear, but I mean, he was pulling Christy's hair, punching her in the stomach. He was hurting himself. He was punching her. And this children's services come in and they take my four other children on her back deck in front of a picture window. Christy's sitting on the couch with Josh trying to keep him calm, getting hurt. He's hurting himself. And they interview mother children outside on our back deck like we've done something wrong they come in and start treating us like an abuse case and here's my young children crying not understanding what's going on with their brother not understanding who these people are what's going on and they get interviewed wanting to know how our marriage is how we treat josh and we're calling for help for a behavioral disorder. So the crisis worker was even, he, he told my wife, he said, I've never run into this before. And he told her, he said, I apologize for calling them. Cause he said, this is not what's supposed to be happening right now. And he said, this is not the way to handle this. So she's tore up. She calls me and tells me everything that's going on. And I, I couldn't leave the conference right then. And I said, well, what's happening? I said, well, they stayed here until Josh calmed down. And I said, well, what's going to happen now? She said, well, I've t- I've called Project Transition and I've called ECF. They're coming in tomorrow. And they call her back and they said, okay, we want you to meet us in Chatt- or Knoxville tomorrow at a, a treatment facility. So my, my wife and my dad end up driving him because 
nobody will transport Josh because they say he's too violent. And that within itself was dangerous. But they was able to get him to Knoxville. They take him in. The nurses start talking to him. They look at my wife and said, we're not going to admit him here. Our coordinator was standing there. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to say. They said, we're not going to admit him. So they start to leave, and they said, no, no, we don't want you to leave because he was in the middle of an episode. Christy said, what are we supposed to do? You won't admit us, but you don't want us to leave. And they said, well, have you ever considered just taking him to an ER and relinquishing custody to the state? They just told you that. Like, oh, yeah, yeah that's easy. Like, We've been told that. Probably, and I, I've tried to count, but I know I've been told that at least 12 or 15 different times <laughs> by different ones. We've been told by nurses. We've been told by by different ones from the state, you know, uh, different programs. It's, you know, you can, you can give up custody. You can do this. You can do that. We've told them over and over and over, no, we're not giving and up custody. Let me child. point out, these are the people that are supposed to be helping these people, not <laughs> asking to relinquish custody, no. Correct. And that's one thing that I advocate for now is, the, you know, these situations, if a child needs treatment, what good is it going to do to make the family give up custody to get that treatment? I know, that's just going to make it worse. Treatment? Yes. It's just adding stresses on families. This is the things that need to be talked about. These are the situations that, that, you know, the public needs to know that it's happening because I'm finding a lot of families don't know that this goes on, and it does. But uh, we faced that, and Christy was like, no. Finally, they left Knoxville and got him home, and I called home that night. I said, what on earth are we going to do now? I said, I don't know. In about an hour, she called back and she said, Luke, they've got him going to a hospital in Atlanta tomorrow. And I said, okay, this is what we need. And I had heard of this hospital before and I thought, well, this is good because I think they'll help him. Well, the reason we got to go to Atlanta was because everywhere in the state of Tennessee had turned Josh down. That was the only way you can go out of state. In the entire state of Tennessee. In the entire state of Tennessee, any program that that was capable of treating him had turned him down at least once, if not multiple times. So at that point, you're allowed to go out of state. And they take him to Atlanta, which my, my wife had to transport him again because nobody would transport him. And but they actually made it down there, got him admitted. Our understanding was he'd stay, you know, three to three to nine months, according to how well he did. And they would get him, you know, they'd do a med wash, they'd do whatever it took, give him therapies, get the behaviors managed. So we thought, okay, good, this is what he needs. Twelve days later, they released him, and they reported to our insurance that he was not having any behaviors whatsoever and basically looked like, told him that he didn't have these diagnoses and he wasn't having any issues. So 
I didn't know that that's what they'd reported at the time because when they released him, they told my wife, said, if he does start having the episodes again, just call us and we'll get him right back in. So we thought, okay, if it happens, we'll get him right back in. Well, I think it was about, I can't remember if it was four or five days. It was just a matter of days after he was released. He come home and he was ripping all the sheetrock out of the house. He was running his head through the walls, through the cabinets. And we called to get help and said, we need to get him back in. And I'll never forget what we heard. They said, oh, no, it does not work that way. And Christy said, what do you mean? They said, well, he was went through the program and they said he wasn't having behaviors. And they, we said, well, OK, well, he is now. They said, no, you don't understand. He's got to be turned down by everybody in the state again. What? <laughs> and yes, once they said that what they said in Atlanta, it hit the reset button. So everything we had been working for for over a year, we got the reset button hit on us. And they said, you've got to be denied by everybody in the state all over again. And I'm laughing because I don't know what. Say, I mean, yeah. that's just how. That's what we thought. I mean, when you're standing there and somebody tells you that and tells you, <laughs> okay, you've, you've documented all this, you've got all this from these doctors over the past year, and we've worked to get him into a facility in 12 days, which ain't even really, they shouldn't be doing this. I, I would love to see a Joshua's law passed where if you have documented uh, behaviors uh, from psychiatrists and doctors that document the behaviors, that they can't release a child without giving them at least a six-week stay there because children honeymoon. That, uh, yes, honeymoon that, should be, that should be federal law. So, Trump, if, you're, I, if you ever I'm, listen to this, you know, just, Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I'm wanting to see. I, I am advocating, and I want somebody to hear me out on this. There needs to be a federal law. I want to see a Joshua's law passed. That don't happen again, because he needed help. They didn't give the correct amount of time, and it hit the reset button on us. Now, what this caused now was very, very, very severe behaviors. We went into desperation survival mode after this they finally did bring in an aba therapist that summer after he come home and she come in and her plan basically was she told him said he's gonna have to have inpatient treatment she told us said normally an aba therapist is not going to recommend the inpatient treatment but she said it's obvious he's got to have it well even that wasn't enough to get him back in so by this time, the behaviors are, are just unbelievable, daily behaviors. We're isolated in our home. He's breaking his teeth. He's, He's breaking his teeth. Yes. He is self-injuring to the point he broke his teeth. How? And you can... <sighs> hey, Josh has a... The doctors has told us he has a pretty high pain tolerance, but his self-injury got so bad. We watched him 
and witnessed him break his teeth. And he was in pain from that. And during the fall of 2017, our coordinators seen what was going on. They knew what was going on. We was reporting, we was documenting that uh, our ABA finally uh, resigned and she told us, you know, hey, you've got to get him in somewhere. I said, we're trying. Well, we couldn't even get him into a, a dentist. A dentist wouldn't see him because he was going to have to be sedated. We couldn't find anybody. And I said, I said, surely somebody will see him in an emergency case. This is probably in November and early December. I said, he's in pain. His teeth are broken. So we go all the way through Christmas. And we're going into 2018. So we're he went all the way through Christmas and New Year's with broken teeth because nobody would see him. That's correct. And it, it probably started in October. And that he is, broke more off. Oh, my God. That is – I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes. I, I know this is tough. This is a hard subject. But I, I've got to tell the story just so people will know what happened. And he's actually breaking more teeth off. We're going into January. Our coordinator for Project Transition was wonderful. She she was trying her best to find somewhere. We finally find a place in Knoxville that will see him. And we go up and they evaluate him and they set up an appointment when we come back. Well, he starts having an episode. And they said, well, we had ordered medicine to calm him down, but it didn't get here today. I said, we're going to have to wait on the appointment. I was begging. I was in tears. I said, please don't wait. Please don't wait. They said, we're going to have to wait and on this. So this was in, I think that was in late January. February 2nd, Josh had a seizure. And it was worse than any seizure he'd ever had before. And he quit breathing. We had to call 911. I was on my way home. Uh, I had taken my other son to, to, to a football workout, and my wife called me screaming. <laughs> or one of my, actually, one of my daughters called me screaming. And, I and I'm laughing, understand. by the way, because I can't imagine what this was like. Uh, this, this was scary. This was total fear. And I, I couldn't understand because they were screaming. And then one of my daughters just said, it's Josh. So at that point, I'm, I just, I'm flying in my car trying to get home. Camden's in the seat beside me. He's, he's crying. He's praying, begging, you know, God help my brother, help my brother. Well, I didn't know what was going on. And I, I got here right before the first responders and I, I run up the steps and I get to him. And Christy said, he just now started breathing again. She said he was completely blue. He had not been breathing for a while. And he took a big gasp right before I got there. She said, probably 30 seconds before I come up the steps. And he started breathing again. The first responders come in. This was on February 2nd of 2018. And whatever happened during that seizure, he went into full-blown behavior mode and didn't come out of it. It was 24-7. He wouldn't calm down. So those next 10 days, because our our appointment to get his teeth fixed was on February 12th, those next 10 days, we we couldn't handle it at all. And it was 
It was bad. So we survived it long enough to get him to that dentist appointment. And February 12th, we take him in. They fix his teeth. He comes out of uh, surgery and and was in the recovery room. And as soon as he wakes up, he, he starts going into an episode. So they give us a prescription for pain meds and open up the side door and said, you can go ahead and take him. So we knew what was happening. We knew we just had a, a finite amount of time. And we we got him to the car, and it was bad. And I told Chris, this and just get us home. The second we pulled out onto the highway, he went into a rage and was trying to break the window out with his forehead. And all I could do was get in his lap and try to protect him. About two miles down the road, I finally give out, and I told Christy, said, told her, said, just call nine one one. And which has got to be, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but that's got to be terrifying. It was awful. It, it was awful. I ended up. I mean, I knew Josh was in pain. I I, I knew why he was having the behaviors uh, because he was in pain. You know, he just had his teeth fixed. They had to pull several teeth from where he had broken them off. And I I can't imagine what kind of pain he was in. And I was just trying to comfort him. Uh, But I was severely injured uh, trying to help him. Uh, Took six Knoxville police officers, three EMTs, and me and my wife after they'd give him two shots to calm him down just to get him into an ambulance. Uh, We got him transported to the hospital got him calmed down and social worker come in and talk to us and, you know, gave us their options, said, well, we can call crisis. And I said, well, no, I said, I think we can get him home. I didn't know at the time, but they had already called crisis and crisis refused to, to come out and do an in-person evaluation of Josh. Cause they said, Oh, well, it's just dental pain. So there's nothing we can do. We found that out after the fact. And um, I'm sorry, it's not just dental pain. People don't go into rages over dental pain. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, uh, there was more going on. I mean, I realized, like I said, I know he was in pain and it was adding to it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but the fact was they they refused to come out. So they gave us a phone number and said, okay, if he was to get upset again, uh, before you get home, call this crisis number. I said, okay, we will. So we get on and the And you interstate. must have been like at this point, oh my gosh, how many more? Like how? Yeah, it, it like, was. Ugh. Well, at that point, I actually thought we could get him home. He had calmed down at that point. But as soon as we got on the interstate, he went into another rage. And this time I got hurt really bad. Uh I had been bitten several times. Uh, I got a severe eye injury during all of this. Uh, and we made it down the road to uh, Fort Loudon Medical Center. And I told Chris, I said, go to that ER, go to that ER right now. I told her, I said, I can't hold him no more. I said, we've got to go back to another ER. So we call crisis. The crisis this time said, well, 
you can't call us. But we've got to, you've got to uh, have the doctor call us. So we said, fine. We got into the ER. We told the ER doctor what was going on. And we said, we've called crisis. And they said, they have to talk to you. They said, they couldn't talk to us. The doctor said, sure, I'll certainly call them. So he walked out of the room talking to him. About 30 minutes, he came back in. And he said, look, he said, they're telling me there's no beds available anywhere, which we've heard a million times before. He said, they're not going to allow us to admit him here. And he said, they're not going to come out and do the, the evaluation of Josh. I said, well, they're supposed to come out and evaluate him. We called this crisis. We were in a crisis situation. He said, they're, they've told me they're not coming. So he said, you've got two options. He said, you can sleep here for safety. Or you can, we can give him more medications and you can see if you can get home. So it was almost two o'clock in the morning at this point. And I said, well, just go ahead and give him some more medications. And he did. And we left. As soon as we got back to the car, that I got attacked a third time uh, during another rage. But he is weak this time. So we was able to get him into the car. Uh, we got home. He fell asleep about five o'clock that morning. And then we called his pediatrician and told him everything that was happened. And he was upset. He called crisis personally. And he said, look, you're going to do something. And he said, you've got to get up here. You've got to see this family. This is not a joke. This is something that's got to be took care of. So he helped us there that next day. And by that time, I, my eyes was swelled shut. So Christy, we got him. Which home. I had to stop you for a minute and say, God bless that pediatrician. That pediatrician has been an angel to us. Yes. Uh, he's always worked hard for us. Uh, just super great guy and a wonderful doctor. Uh, and he, he got a hold of somebody, and this crisis worker could come in. She took one look at what had happened to me, and she said, Oh my goodness, we've got to get some help now. So she got on the phone and started trying to get help, and they arranged to take Josh to Erlanger and was trying to get him into an acute treatment facility. And she called the our local police department to transport Josh. So they show up, and I start talking to the deputies. I said, you know, you're not going to be able to treat, transport Josh. And he said, oh, no. He said, there's no way. He said, that, that cage... In the back of our police car, he said, with what's happening here and what's happened to you, he said, he'll tear himself apart. I said, yes. They said, we're going to get an ambulance here, and we're going to get them to, to transport. So we get an ambulance, and I told him, I warned him. I said, look, we've tried to get them to transport Josh before, and they've refused. He said, no, we'll get it done. But they start refusing. And we're trying to get Josh to Erlanger. The, the ambulance company is refusing to transport. And I said, look, you've got to transport him. I said, no, he's too dangerous. And I said, you don't understand. I said, Josh, I said, he has autism. And I said, if you put him on that gurney, and I said, when you put the belts around him, this may seem, sound strange to you, but I said, that's actually comforting to him. I said, he will calm down. He said, there's no way. I said, yes. I said, if I hug him, if he has a belt or a weighted blanket or anything on him, it calms him. 
I said, if you will just try, please just try, because we'd been sitting there for about an hour and a half, two hours or so, just trying to get him transported to Erlanger. So finally, they get, get in there, and we get him on the gurney, and they strap him down, and Josh calms right down. They look at Christy when she gets to Erlanger and said, you know, he didn't make a sound the whole way down here. And we was like, well, we told you, if you would just try, you know, he, this is comforting to him. So to make a long story short, we get to, to Erlanger. They spend three days down there. The last day, I think my eyes finally opened up where I could drive. And I went down there and met, met Christy. And that everything happened. That was on a Monday morning when he had his surgery. Uh, we got Josh transferred Thursday night to Atlanta, back to the same hospital again. And Christy got home and got in bed Friday morning about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. It was the first time she's seen a bed since Monday. What? How is this woman even surviving at this point? I mean. That's what I tell everybody. I said, when, when I say survival mode, <laughs> we were truly in survival mode and I know that's just a, a, a phrase, but you would have to experience it to see what we went through. I mean, I, I'm a huge survivor fan like the TV show survivor and listening to you on Loma, I said, these people live survivor. They don't need to watch it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we we truly were, we were, we were in survival mode. Yeah, you, you go days without sleep. Uh, it affects the stress levels are unbelievable. Uh, it affects so many things. Uh, it was tough. And so what happened next? Well, he went back to Atlanta. The same broken record story again. They start trying to say in Atlanta that he didn't have any behaviors. And they started trying to tell the insurance again that he does not have these diagnoses. But this time, they put him on lithium when he goes down there. And I start questioning that. I said, told Chris, I said, what? Why would you put him on lithium if he's not having any type of behaviors? So we didn't understand. So I seen what was coming. And I knew, okay, we've got to get legal help. So my cousin that was a lawyer, I asked him, I said, look, what can we do? And he said, well, what are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force the issue. He said, you're not going to like what, what I'm fixing to say. But he said, don't be scared of it because he said it will force it. I said, okay. He said, we're going to go to juvenile services and we're going to file an unruly child petition. I said, I don't want to you know, file an unruly child petition against my child. He said, no, don't think of it that way. He said, what this is going to do is force the state to do something about this and not just keep continually putting it off. I said, okay. I said, I understand. I said, I'm going to trust you. And he was right. Uh, what that done was it got us in touch with juvenile services. We had lawyers. We had advocates. Uh, we had people from children's services. We had people from uh, uh, the court system. Uh, there was a room full of people, and then there was probably four or five on the phone. And we had a phone conference with uh, the hospital that they had taken him to. 
So they started trying to say, oh, yeah, he's not having any behaviors. And one of the juvenile services people said, well, if he's not having any behaviors, why did y'all put him on lithium, a high dose of lithium? And the nurse kindly that was on the call and the administrator said, well, uh, the mother requested it. And they said, wait a minute. You don't put a child on that kind of medication at the request of a parent, especially if he's not having any issues. So it kind of turned into a heated argument at that point. And the hospital finally, during all of this, said, look, we've got patients to tend to and just hung up on the phone call. And everybody was sitting around the table, all these, all the uh, the lawyer and the, the court-appointed uh, people that was there, juvenile services, and they looked at each other and said, we have never in our life run into anything like this before. So we start leaving and our, our – And honestly, can I, can I stop you again and yeah. say, I want to be a civil and human rights lawyer. And if I had been in that room – and I'd have even been in law school. I'd have been like, you will be hearing from the Justice Department very soon because yes. that is not okay. <laughs> yeah. And that, this is that right here is what's going to blow your mind. And I don't know if I've mentioned this in another podcast or even on our page before, but before we left that room, one of the people that was in that meeting was with a state agency. And they came to us before we left. And they said, we need to talk to you. And I said, okay. So me and Christy was standing there. They said, you need to talk to your lawyer, and he needs to subpoena records from this hospital. And I said, okay, fine. Why do we need to do that? They said, because they're saying that your child is not having any behaviors, and they put them on this medication. They said, what you don't know was after your child was at that hospital for one day, they called the state of Tennessee and said, we cannot handle this child. Come pick him up. What? So they said, basically, yes. They said, what we know now after this meeting and them saying that he was not having any behaviors, said it's already been reported to the state that they couldn't, they couldn't handle him and wanted him picked up. They said that there's falsification of documents. They said, you need to get your lawyer to subpoena these records. So we were kind of blown away at this point. And we didn't know what to do. So we're thinking, okay, they're they're going to release him, and we're going to go through this whole nightmare for another year. <laughs> yes. So I, I talked to the lawyer, and I thought, what are we going to do? So after that meeting, all of the, our ECF coordinator was in it, our transition coordinator. Everybody that was there was like, oh, my gosh. They said, okay, we're going to get him transferred now. So they, they start working to get him transferred to uh, a hospital in South Carolina. And it's, that's where he finally got treatment was at Springbrook in South Carolina. So they start working on this. And they tell the, the, the hospital in Atlanta what they're going to do. Well, we get a phone call, and they said, you've got to come pick up your son. You've got 48 hours to come pick him up. I said, look, they're trying to transfer him to Springbrook. They said, okay, well, you've got 48 hours. If you don't come pick him up, we're going to charge you with abandonment <laughs> across state lines. What? And I, yes, I, I was at work when I got the phone call. I break down. 
the guy that I work with, I, I apologize to him. I mean, I'm just sitting there in tears. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. So I go back to juvenile services, tell them what's going on. They get on the phone. They start working. I get back with with my cousin. So they get on the phone with the lawyer that's for the hospital and the administrator down there, and my cousin got on there. He got everything extended two weeks. We thought, okay, that'll be enough time to get him get him transferred. And we thought it would be. But at the end of two weeks, there were still like two or three days left uh, before we could get him transferred to South Carolina. So this time, Christy gets a phone call. They said, you've got six hours to get down here and pick up Josh or we're charging you with abandonment. So they start threatening my wife again. So at this point, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? So I get back in touch with the lawyer. I have to take off work. So this time we go before a uh, a juvenile judge and my lawyer goes in. My cousin, you know, he's talking to him. I'm not allowed in the meeting this time. So I don't know what got said, but the ju- our local juvenile uh, judge goes into this meeting with with my cousin, uh, along with the lawyer from the hospital and the administrator down there. Whatever got said during that meeting, I did not have any more issues with that facility in Atlanta. God they bless that judge. Woo! Uh, but yes, it, it took a judge to get it stopped. They seen what was going on, and but you know if I hadn't went that route. They were threatening us with with everything they had. So, and there was other issues that went on down there that I've not discussed. Uh, but it was it was it was a total nightmare. Uh, but you know, the, after that, they transferred Josh to Springbrook. Uh, the first month he honeymooned at Springbrook. The first meeting, uh, everybody's like, well, you know, Josh is not having that much of a, a, an issue. I said, just give it a few more days. I think three days later after that meeting, they called and said, okay, we see what you're talking about now, and we see how severe this is. And they start working with us at that point. And Josh spent uh, 15 months uh, over in South Carolina getting treatment. And so what sustained you through all this? The the thing that sustained me and my wife is, you know, our faith in God. Uh, that's where we we gain strength from. I know everybody's different, but our faith in God is what got us through. It, it, just having that hope, uh, you know, because even during all of this, you have those moments where you're questioning, you're thinking, God, why? God, where are you? God, why this path? Why is this happening? Uh, you're still, you know, have those feelings, but you have to hold on to that hope. Uh, and, you know, just the love for our family, uh, just the love and knowing that this is bad, but we've got to find better days. We've got to find a solution for Josh. We've got to find a way that our family can be a family again and not be isolated in our home. Uh, what what one point that I will talk about right now that a lot of people don't realize is Josh targeted my youngest daughter when she was younger. She spent 
a large majority of that time during those two and three years hiding in her bedroom. That was tough. That was one of the toughest things to watch was watching her hide and be scared. And did the other kids have to have counseling after all this? We have uh, not had uh, professional counseling. Uh, We've sat down as a family and talked through several things. My youngest daughter, we, uh, when I started advocating, I started working with Autism Speaks and the uh, National Council on Severe Autism. And I was working on a project, uh, an advocacy project, where we talked about siblings and, and we just sat down with her one day. And my wife started asking her. And it was, it, it was something to see, you know, this, this, at the time, she was, I think, seven, maybe eight. No, she would have been about seven at the time just have a conversation with her mom like an adult and the things that come out of her mouth and the concerns and her fears. And it was all love toward Josh and what's going to happen and how are they going to treat him? How are they going to get him better? It was just, she was wise beyond her years. And all of this becomes just flooding out of her. And we realized the extent that this had been on her mind. And then we we had conversations with our older kids, and it was the same thing. I just we didn't realize that it had had the effect on them that it had it. It hit me and Christy both like a ton of bricks at that point. That's when everything started becoming real because you are so numb. Like I said, when you're in that survival mode, you're just trying to keep the pieces together. And when we had time to breathe and really step back and start talking to the kids and start talking to each other, that's when everything kind of unloaded. And it it was just kind of, wow, we didn't even realize it had got to the point that it did. I don't usually, I don't like to get into anything like controversial, I would say, on this podcast, but what's your favorite Bible verse? Well, there is so, so, so many Bible verses. Uh, and like I said, we our faith in God, uh, but we tell everybody uh, about the verse in, in Jeremiah because it is the anchor verse that we've had for so long. Uh, Jeremiah, it's... Uh, 29 and 11 uh, is our our verse that we, our go-to verse. Uh, And, you know, um, just to know that you have hope, just to know that he has plans for you, uh, to know that he's not thinking people. Uh, When you're going through these things, you're thinking, why God, why is this happening? Just to know that he has a plan in place, to know that there is hope, uh, it means everything. That that was our our anchor scripture. And I love what Stephen Furtick of Our Vision Church says. The fact that it says, I know the plans I have for you, implies that you don't. Yes, 
So he knows the plans that he has for us. He knows the thoughts that, you know, he has toward us, the plans that he has toward us. Uh, We don't see those plans. We don't see those things at the time. Uh, And that scripture was so, so important to us uh, during all of this. Uh, that's probably I have to say that's probably our favorite because that's the one that 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 kept us going, knowing that there's a plan in place uh, that we don't see all the outcome of this, and uh, we we know that there was a path that that he had us on. And um, the Elevation Worship Sea of Victory, I love that song, and um, there's a bridge in there that goes you take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good and I can't help but think of that when I hear y'all's story and is there anything else you would want to add to this before we get off here no it's just uh, just speaking of that we've got a we've got a picture hanging in our in our living room that during every episode, during every hard day, I would always just look up at this picture, and it, it simply says, "The will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not protect you." And that that little picture, so many times, would just have me meditating upon, like I said, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, uh, and think, you know, God, there's a plan. There's a plan. You're you're taking us somewhere. Uh, so that that always helped us make it through. And um, where can people find you on social media? We're on Instagram and Facebook uh, at A Voice for Joshua. And there's a public page there where we, we, uh, we write posts and uh, share articles. We also have a private support group. It's uh, A Voice for Joshua support group. You can join it if you're a family that's facing these situations and issues. So it is a private group, and whatever's talked about there stays in that group. Vance, you're you're awesome. I can't even imagine. Um, I really I say this all the time, but I really do want to keep in touch with y'all because you guys are just amazing. And I hope we can talk again soon, and I'd be honored to help you with your advocacy work or anything. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Real Talk, the podcast. Connect with us on Instagram at Real Talk Pod Official, Twitter at Devin Real Talk, and Facebook at Real Talk Podcast Official. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by using the link in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.